This episode of Outlines contains descriptions of murder which some may find distressing, so listener discretion is advised. Today's case starts in the seaside town of Great Yarmouth in the county of Norfolk. Once famous for its herring fishing industry, by the early 19th century it had become a popular holiday destination. Like so many of these towns along the East Anglian coastline, Nowadays, it sits as a fading reminder of a time before cheap flights made British resort holidays a thing of the past. In researching this episode, I came across many photographs of Yarmouth from the early parts of the 20th century. The fashions evolve, but the themes remain the same. Men and women relax on the crowded beaches. They wear suits and full dresses and embrace between deck chairs or lay together on the sands, seemingly oblivious of the camera's lens. This is the Yarmouth of the past. It's fun and lively, and it is here, at 4.30 in the morning, on Monday the 15th of July 1912, that this all-but-forgotten story begins. On the quiet stretch of Yarmouth's South Beach, about six feet from the roadway of the Marine Parade, Two carters, William Smith and Daniel Dockwer, spied a woman lying still amongst the sands and grasses in the early morning light. She was stretched out peacefully in a southeasterly position. The ground around her was relatively undisturbed, and her legs were bare. Her shoes lay about twelve inches from her side, and her hands were relaxed, fingers outstretched and slightly splayed. There were no signs of a struggle. Her hat was still on her head, and her plaited hair was tied neatly with two ribbon bows. If it wasn't for the shoelace and the reef-knotted black cotton stockings wrapped tight around her neck, she'd almost have appeared to be asleep. The two men quickly continued up the road until they came across Police Sergeant Herring, with whom they returned to the scene. It would be six in the morning when the mortuary ambulance arrived to collect the woman's body. And by this time, it was estimated by police surgeon Dr Thomas Letts that 18-year-old Dora Gray had been dead for almost five hours. This is the oldest unsolved murder I've ever attempted to cover on the show. But don't let that put you off. There's something timeless about this case. There's something timeless about Dora. As the weeks followed the discovery of her body, it became clear that she was a young woman with many secrets. It started with her name. She was Dorothy, or Dora, or Dolly, and she was Dolly Gray, or Dolly Palmer, and to some she was one type of woman, and to others she was something completely different. For those who knew her day to day, the complexities of her character would come as a surprise. To hear it now, she sounds no different to many modern women, but this was shocking at the time. She did not act as those around her would have expected. At the adjournment of the inquest into her death, it would be said that her life was not all that it should have been, though I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to the beginning, and I'll tell you about the double life of Dora Gray. I'm Jess Carter, and this is the Outlines Podcast.
born around the year 1894, Dorothy May Gray's life did not have the best beginning. In newspapers from the time of her death, she's reported as having lost both her parents. In time, Dora would tell friends that her father was a doctor and her mother lived in Sheffield, or that her father was a bank manager and that she was going to Canada in the autumn to visit him. These are lies. The most accurate I can be is to say that she probably never knew her father and that when she was just nine months old, her mother, a waitress, left for Peterborough and was never heard from again. Following this, she moved to 10 Manby Road in Great Yarmouth where she lived until her death with her aunts, Selma Ann Eastwick and Harriet Brooke, a widow. By the time of her 18th year, Dora is described as being well-built, about five foot four inches tall with light grey eyes and dark brown hair with one imperfect centre tooth. There's a grainy black and white photograph of Dora in a weekday edition of the Eastern Daily Press. She's wearing a dark blazer, a high-necked white shirt and an exceptionally wide-brimmed hat which sits low on her forehead and casts the top half of her face into shadow. She's holding the beginnings of a smile and her head is slightly tilted back. The parts of her which aren't in darkness show that her face is heart-shaped. Her appearance is one of youth, of a well-turned-out girl dressing in an adult's costume. There's something about the photograph which resonates with me. It's all in the shadow, how you can't see her eyes. It's a perfect mirror of the life she led. During the week, from Monday to Saturday, between the hours of 8am and 7pm, Dora worked at Number 2 Manby Road, where she was employed by Mr Robert Henry Newman and his wife Louise. She worked as a day girl for the couple, looking after their two children. And at the inquest, Louise Newman would describe her as a good girl in the house, very willing and honest. And while there was the exception of one week, which I'll talk about soon, it appears that she was a hard-working and trustworthy employee. It was on a Sunday that Dora would transform. She would leave the house, dressed in her most attractive clothes, a bright ribbon in her hair, and it was then that she became Dolly Grey. As Dolly, her circle of friends are described as being on a higher plane. One of them, a Miss Penny, told that she had no idea that Dora was in service. She said she was most refined and ladylike, and that she would often adopt the surname of Palmer. Dolly Palmer was a young woman with secrets. By all accounts, she was often seen with a number of different rich young men. These men owned yachts and motor cars, and they would take Dolly sailing on the Norfolk Broads or for day trips to places including the city of Norwich. When she wasn't travelling with a companion, she could sometimes be found walking arm in arm with different men in yachting dress or aboard the boats at Yarmouth's yacht stand. At the inquest into her death, police surgeon Dr Letts would tell the jury that Dora had not led a blameless life. Before I talk more about the weeks leading up to her murder, I want to talk about this. It isn't the first time I've covered a case where the victim has been portrayed as scandalous because of her associations with men. 
It happened here to Dora Gray in 1912, and after the murder of Helen Hooper in 1976, and Diane Jones in 1983, and Jeanette Kempton in 1989, and to countless other women right up to the present day. And while I normally like to let you come to your own conclusions, today I want to tell you how I feel. We all have secrets. None of us, male or female, have ever led a blameless life, whatever that means. And all the false sympathies in the world cannot cover up the fact that some parts of the press have and will continue to blame murdered women for their own deaths. At the time of Dora's killing, her affairs were considered scandalous, and they're reported with glee. It is never said explicitly, but nonetheless, the newsmen want us to know that it is her double life that led to her death, that she was not a blameless woman. When I tell you about the weeks leading up to her murder, it is to help you understand why her killing might have occurred and who might have done it. Yes, it makes a good story, the day girl with a secret life and a made-up name. But unlike the news, I don't care what she did. I don't care if she slept with every rich man in East Anglia. This was an 18-year-old girl who was strangled to death. It has happened throughout the centuries and it will continue to happen, but these women are not murdered because of the ways they live their life. They're murdered because of one person, at one specific moment, who chooses to commit a terrible act. It can occur regardless of the way you've lived, and I'm bored of reading implications to the contrary. It is clear that in the time leading up to the evening of the 14th and morning of the 15th of July 1912, there was something private happening in Dora's life. From June the 16th to the 24th, she was away from her job without leave. During this time, her aunts believed that she was working as usual. But instead, each morning Dora would leave her home in Manby Road and spend the days in Yarmouth or further afield. Once, her employer, Mrs Newman, spotted her with a group of five men in yachting gear. When questioned about this, Dora said only that she had done no harm. It's unclear exactly what she was up to over this period, but in the month before her death, she was seen walking with many different men and admitted herself to having been on day trips to nearby towns. Hubert Baldoy, the 13-year-old son of the owner of Yarmouth Yacht Stand, told the Eastern Daily Press that for at least a month Dora had been calling at the yacht stand to inquire after a specific boat. This was a yacht called The Flame, which reportedly belonged to Wrexham. She wouldn't live to see the arrival of The Flame, which docked on Monday the 15th of July, just a few hours too late. Somewhere over the time that Hubert knew Dora, there was a two-week period in which she did not visit the yacht stand. So unusual was this, that when she next appeared, on the Sunday before her death, Hubert asked her, Where have you been all this time? To which Dora replied, I've been to Lowestoft with a man. She then told Hubert that she was going to go on a walk with the man in question that very day. 
I cannot verify if this is true. If it is, then either the man was never identified or police didn't share the information with the press. I admit, it is difficult to tell what is true of Dora's life and what is fiction. We already know that she would lie about her parents and while that could be passed off as her being embarrassed, it could also fit within a wider pattern. Ultimately, Dolly Gray's secrets were, and always will be, her own. Except for one small thing. Hidden in her bedroom, known only by the young daughter of Mr and Mrs Newman, was a photograph of Dolly and a man in a white drill suit and cap. While papers report that this man was identified and ruled out, we cannot be sure of this. With the passing of years, we cannot be sure of much. I do not have names or times or exact dates, which of course is the reason why I do not have a suspect. I'm very aware that what I know are the bare bones of the life of Dora Gray. She worked a normal job, kept regular hours, and in the evenings or on Sundays she would become Dolly, and for a short while she would leave behind her everyday life. And it is this which brings me to the events of the evening of Sunday the 14th of July and the hours before her death. This timeline is the best that I can establish of those moments leading up to her murder. At the inquest, her aunt Selma Eastwick told how Dora had left the house on Manby Road at around 7.30pm. She was dressed in the clothes in which she would later be found. These were a blue serge dress of modest make with a hat of a more pretentious style. A nurse's cap, which she wore underneath the hat, was trimmed with pink ribbon and two large pink roses. Her underclothing was described as being of moderate quality. On the band of her petticoat was the number 193, a laundry mark. And on her hands she wore a gold ring bearing the initial D. At a quarter to eight, William Bacon, a bill poster, said that he saw Dora on the Marine Parade in the company of a young man. The two were not arm in arm, but were laughing and talking as they made their way towards the South Beach where her body would later be found. It is reported that the gentleman was wearing a light grey suit, a grey hat and dark brown boots. According to William, the man stood at about six feet high, a head and shoulder taller than Dora, he was clean-shaven and dark-complexioned. The next sighting comes from John Harris, an attendant on the Britannia Pier, who said that he saw Dora just before eight o'clock coming along the parade with a man of about 40 and that they passed him going in the direction of the South Beach. He said that he had seen Dora play box ball on the pier several times with a man, but he could not say whether the man he saw her with on Sunday night had ever been with her in the pier. According to John... The man was fair and clean-shaven, wearing a grey suit and a straw hat. There is another sighting at 8.30. Her friend Miss Thurlow saw her heading in the direction of Britannia Pier, but I can't establish whether she was with a man at that time. Finally, Dora was seen at just before nine o'clock by Emily Blythe, an assistant at the fruit stalls on the Marine Parade South, who said that she saw Dora in company with a young man. The man was dressed in a grey suit, and to Emily he appeared about 20 years old, and the same height as Dora. Emily had seen her with a man on the previous weekend, but she could not say if it was the same person. 
Between nine o'clock on the Sunday night and 4.35 in the morning, there are no more recorded sightings of the couple. It is in this period, estimated at somewhere around midnight, that Dora Gray was strangled and left dead on Yarmouth's South Beach. I mentioned earlier a few of the facts of her death, but I want to go into more detail. Some points will be new and some repeated. At the inquest, Dr Thomas Letts said that he saw her body before it was removed from the beach. There were no signs of a struggle in a 300-yard radius, although her brown kid gloves were found about 280 yards away from her body. There was no sand on her face or hair, and she was cold and stiff, but lay on her back in what is described as a quiet and reposeful position, with her arms by her side and hands relaxed, her fingers slightly splayed. Her clothing was mostly in place, though her legs were lightly drawn up and her feet were bare. It was established that she had not been in the sea. Her shoes lay on the ground about 12 inches from her feet and 12 inches apart. One shoe had no lace in it. Her hat was on her head and her hair was plaited down her back, fastened with two ribbon bows. There was nothing in her pockets, but a small fancy handkerchief was found between her side and her right arm. All signs were that she had died from asphyxiation. There was some frothy mucus in her windpipe showing that efforts had been made at respiration and the right side of her heart was full of dark blood, the left side contracted and empty. There were no drugs in her stomach or signs that she had been immobilised before her murder occurred, except for a few scratches on her chin. She had been strangled with a shoelace, which while it had not penetrated her neck particularly deeply, was tied twice around her throat just above the Adam's apple with a reef knot. A pair of black cotton stockings were also tied around her throat with the same type of knot. One was twice round her neck and the other once around. Inside one stocking was a piece of purple ribbon, perhaps a garter. A second doctor, Dr Blake, said that Dora must have been lying on her back a little inclined to the left side when she was dying. He found a blood stain smudged around her face which was microscopically examined, but there was nothing that could be photographed. In his opinion, the scratches and abrasions to Dora's chin showed that she died from the first turn of the shoelace, which was put around, then crossed and pulled tight. He said that the first turn undoubtedly stopped resistance. If you're wondering why I've gone into so much detail with the facts of her death, it's because of the questions they raise. Was she deliberately placed in that position? Why were there so few signs of a struggle? Was she killed on the beach at all? But if she wasn't, then how did someone get her body there without causing major disturbance to the sand? Though, if she was killed there, she was so close to the popular marine parade that surely... Even late at night, someone should have heard or seen something. Like so many of these unsolved crimes, the more detailed the facts, the more estranged I feel from the truth. Like the Yarmouth police, I cannot fathom how the events of that evening unfolded.
I'm nearing the end of this episode. Normally I'd speak about the hunt for the killer, but in this case there are almost no reports of police action. I believe they made efforts to question the men they could identify and ruled out everyone they spoke to, but for the most part they seem to have been relying on the stream of young men who handed themselves in at police stations across the country, all confessing to Dora's murder. There was the postcard which arrived with a Tipton postmark on which a man stated that he killed Dora Gray and that he was now well across the water. At Southend Police Station in Essex, a young man announced that he was wanted for the murder. By all accounts, he seemed a little strange and while he was detained for a short time, he was later let go. Then there was a man named George Ward who presented himself at the police station in Great Yarmouth, only to be released without charge. Indeed, one news report states that George was the tenth man to confess to Dora's murder. Then, there was also the sign, pencilled on a large stone near to the spot where her body was found. It read, In memory of Dorothy Maud Gray, may she be revenged, July 15th. The spelling was terrible, her middle name was inaccurate, and yet despite their literacy problems, someone had taken the time to graffiti the message. Dolly Gray appears to have been a woman who captured the imaginations of many young men. I'm going to play you a song now. It's a music hall number first published in 1897, with this version being recorded in 1901. It's called Goodbye Dolly Gray and it's almost certainly the reason why Dora became Dolly. I have come to say goodbye, Dolly Gray. It's no use to ask me why, Dolly Gray. There's a murmur in Dolly Gray, sounding through the village street, Dolly Gray, is the tramp of soldiers through in their uniforms of blue, I must say goodbye to you, Dolly Gray, goodbye Dolly, I must leave you, though it breaks my heart to go. From war the regiment comes, Dolly Gray. On your lovely face so fair, I can see a look of care. For your soldier boy's not there, Dolly Gray. For the one you love so well, Dolly Gray. In the midst of battle fell, Dolly Gray. With his face toward the foe, as he died, he murmured low. I must say goodbye and go. Dolly Gray, Gray. 
It's an overcast and bitter day when my research assistant Gemma and I visit the spot in Yarmouth where Dora Gray's body was found. Standing on the desolate stretch of the South Beach, I feel nothing of the heydays of the 19th and early 20th century, when the sands were filled with holidaymakers. Instead, we watch an open-air drug deal, and beside me, Gemma coughs noisily, midway through a chest infection. The beach is a wide expanse and stretches towards the grey of the sea. Standing there, I know that this is not the Yarmouth that Dolly knew. It has nothing of the colour I imagine for her. She's buried at the Corporation Cemetery at Caister. Her coffin was of varnished elm and had a black breastplate with gold lettering reading Dora May Grey, died 15th of July, aged 18 years. Simply to thy cross I cling. Presiding over her funeral was the Reverend F.H. Burkitt, who recited the opening sentences of the burial service. The only other persons present were three women, presumably her employer and her aunts. The cemetery superintendent and two local reporters made up the funeral party. When the coffin was taken out of the chapel to the grave, the procession was joined by four London special correspondents. Her funeral lacked colour too. Where were the yachting men? Those who she walked arm in arm with down the marine parade? Where was the man from Lowestoft, or the one in the hidden photograph? As in life, through death, Dora Gray's secrets have remained a mystery. All we have, all I really know of her, is a photograph of a girl in a woman's clothing, her heart-shaped face half-hidden by shadow. This is the woman who collected friends in higher circles and who every Sunday became Dolly, the woman who lived the life she wanted, not the one she was born in. For me, although Dolly is written into the gaiety of Yarmouth's past, she also exists very much in the present. Since I began researching her case back in March, I've wondered how best to remember her at the end of this episode. And I think it's to say that I understand. We all tell stories, and we all hold photographs and secrets that are special to us. My name is not really Jess Carter. Mostly I tell the truth, but sometimes I lie. When I read about Dora Gray, I saw something of myself in her. Though it's been over a hundred years since her death and her murder will never be solved, 
I wanted to tell you her story because she was vibrant and she was living how she wanted. And to me, that feels like something special. So I'm going to leave you with an image. The year is 1912. The setting is Yarmouth's Marine Parade. And she is a girl on her way to becoming a woman as she walks in the sunshine, filled with the mysteries of her life. This episode of Outlines was researched, written, performed and produced by Jess Carter, with additional input from Gemma Frost. The music was composed by Elias Hardy.